Hi, this is Jeff Thigpen, Guilford County Register of Deeds. And I'm Carly Malcolm, lead for North Carolina Fellow for Guilford County from the UNC School of Government. And welcome to the Good Grief Podcast. Have you ever lost a loved one and had to figure out what to do? Have you ever felt alone and overwhelmed? Did it make you wonder why on earth this is all so complicated? In this podcast series, we bring together community partners to talk unapologetically about issues of death and dying. We answer questions about funerals, hospice, estates, and more to give our listeners the knowledge they need to make decisions for themselves and their loved ones. We want everyone in Guilford County to know that they're supported, that we live in a community where we cannot only live and live well, but when we die, we can also die well because we care. So we thank you for joining us for the Good Grief Podcast and for taking this step to be better prepared for end-of-life challenges. Welcome to the Good Grief Podcast this week. We have a special guest with us, Reverend Odell Cleveland. I'm joined by Carly Malcolm, who is my NC Lead Fellow from the North Carolina Institute of Government. And today we're going to talk about caregiving. Odell, uh, Reverend Cleveland, currently serves as the Chief Administrative Officer at Mount Zion Church, which is a 119-year-old, predominantly African-American church in Greensboro. I've known Odell for 20 years, at least, with uh, the Welfare Reform Liaison Project, which is a nationally recognized faith-based nonprofit. He's been the CEO of that for 16 years. In 2016, he shifted into the caregiving world in the sense of structurally, but he's been doing that for a very long time. He's been instrumental in creating an organization called Caregiver Contact, where he partners with AARP, United Healthcare, and others. He has a new book called It's My Turn Now, Caregiving 101. Hot off the presses, I've read it, and it is a sober look at caregiving, and particularly and personally based on the caregiving that Odell and his family has given to his mother, Glenda Adams Cleveland. So, We're going to talk about the book today. And Odell, thank you for being with us today. You know, thank you for the whole concept of good grief. Because when I think about that, it's just amazing the vision you had to bring that together to make it so much easier for so many other people to deal with issues. So thank you. Yeah. I mean, and we've been doing this podcast series, it keeps expanding. And what's been really a gift to me and Carly has been my partner in this is that we've learned so much about end-of-life care and issues associated with that, which really, in terms of your book, is makes it incredibly relevant. And so one thing I did learn in your book that I did not know, you're a national champion, NAIA basketball at the University of South Carolina. University of South Carolina, Spartanburg. Spartanburg. Now University of South Carolina, Upstate. Of state. But Jeff, that was many years ago <laughs> and many me. pounds ago. So what once was is we fantasize about that, but the reality yeah. is now we're just a 60-year-old man who yeah. just continue for, to do the best we can to for, take care of people. Forget your national you know, honors and Divinity School and Harvard. Ah, nah, 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 the basketball. Yeah, That's and awesome. Hall of Fame. You know, forget all that kind of good stuff. Forget <laughs> all that kind of good stuff. Did I say he made the Hall of Fame, Jeff? You uh, know, oh, yeah. yeah, That's, yeah, yeah oh, thank th- you. That thank was you. the sentence after. <laughs> anyway, that was awesome to, 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 to read that. Something I didn't know about you. And you grew up in uh, Charleston, right? Yes, Charleston, um, South Carolina. Grew up in public housing in Charleston. And the interesting about my journey around caregiving is the fact that once you grow up poor, I mean real poor, you know, divorce, single mom, divorce with four kids, living in public housing, 
And then you get blessed to have an opportunity to come through the cycles in society that you're not poor anymore. Now you go to the White House. Now you go to Paris. Now you go other places. It just gives you a different perspective. And you have to decide what are you going to do with that perspective? Are you going to run away from who you are and what you was and be something new? Or are you going to look back and continue to help people? And we choose to look back and continue to help people. Yeah. So much of where we go in life a lot of times is so intertwined with where we've come from. I'm really interested in your mother. This book centers a lot around the caregiving process that you all have had with her. Can you talk about growing up again and your mom and what happened to her that created the situation where you all had to really take care of her in terms of a caregiving role? Uh, Definitely. You know, again, I stated that we were living in public housing, divorced, single mom in the 60s in Charleston, South Carolina, deep south. And my mother got sick and went to the emergency room and she was having a stroke at the age of 25. Well, the attendants there sent her back home. And anyone who knows anything about strokes and stroke victims knows that minutes count. So she got sent back home for two or three days saying, come back on the free clinic day. Now, my mother was working full time. She had insurance, but a lot of time biases. And in those days in the South, if you were a black female, a lot of times people would look at you, but they would look right through you. They would look right past you. So they sent her home assuming we deal with people like you on the free day. And they sent my mother home. So my mother laid at home for a day and a half until we got another private doctor who made them admit my mother. Now, this is the Medical University of South Carolina, one of the most prestigious schools there. So what would have happened if they would have admitted my mother and treated her for a stroke a day and a half earlier? How would that have changed my life? How would that have changed her life? But we thank God that my mother lived. You know, my mother stayed in the hospital for about three and a half months. Many didn't know if she would live or die. And so the family started having conversations. Okay, she's probably going to die. What happened to the children? And of course, people started divvying everybody up. And I was the one that was a lot of extra conversation around who's going to take Odell. Because Odell wasn't the angel that he is now. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't the angel. And that was 1968, right? Yes. 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 In your book, you use an Old Testament verse, I think it's in Ecclesiastes, talking about time. Yes. How do you use that in relationship to how you structure the framework of the book? Well, it talks about King Solomon as the wisest man. And King Solomon talks about a time, a time for everything. And I won't repeat the scripture because people, yeah. everyone knows it. But I structure it like we're on a journey. You know, we're here. I remember I used to be the little kid running up and down the dirt roads of South Carolina, barefoot with no shoes on playing on grandma's porch. Well, now I'm the older in the family and now I have grandkids. So the life cycle, the cycle of time, we have to understand that we're not going to be here forever. And sooner or later, somebody's going to be coming to your office looking for a death certificate. You know what I mean? Like you say, the final graduation of life, you get your birth certificate (laughs) yeah, and then you get your death certificate. So I'm trying to structure the book to help people understand that this is just a part of your journey. This is going to be over eventually. Because when it comes to caregiving, I look at it as three things, I guess a three-legged stool. It's going to become a time in our lives where we either become a caregiver or need a caregiver. That's the first thing. It's a point in time. The second thing is the duration of time. How long, Lord? How long will my role as a caregiving last? Will I have to take care of someone for six months or for six years or whatever? Will someone have to take care of me? And the last thing is the end of time. When my time as a caregiver is up, will I feel guilty or relieved? And would I feel guilty for feeling relieved? Meaning this, 
I've talked to so many caregivers who says, hmm, I am so glad that I spent the time I did with my loved one before they died because this journey is to death. I mean, usually it doesn't reverse itself. This is a one-way march and you know where it's heading, but a lot of times we don't want to accept where it's heading. So if we accept that this is where we're going, we're marching to the grave, then let's take the time that we have. Let's take the time and do the best we can. And then all these other things like sibling rivalries and all these other stuff start jumping up and popping up. How do we deal with that and manage it? And that's what the books are structured to try to help, not answer all the questions, but try to help people on that journey. Because one way or the other, we're all going on that journey. Yeah. One of the things I'll add is that what I really appreciated about it was I could see myself being a child with my mother. And then as you saw yourself as a child with your mother, and then as an adult, you're in a different role being a caregiver to your mother. And we'll talk a little bit more about this because there's some funny things in here I'll raise. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So for a long time, it was your younger brother that was acting as the caregiver for your mom. But then he retired, right? Yes. Um, so can you talk about what happened after that? Yes. My younger brother is Gennaro Vernari Cleveland. We call him Naughty. And he's been taking care of my mother, and he works civil engineer, Charleston, South Carolina, and he moved in with my mother to take care of her. Well, he was retiring in June, this past June, and he told us that, hey, when I retire, I'm leaving. I'm moving out. So it's a very passionate part of the book that I described that whole scenario when we had that conversation. And it was just so emotionally overwhelming that I just started crying because here it is. I call it our caregiving backbone. Nadia is saying, listen, I've sacrificed my personal life. I sacrificed my professional life. And not that I had enough, but I'm moving on. Mm -hmm. And we had to have a family conversation because the family meetings are so important. My mother, she had to be a part of it. Nadia, of course, myself and my older sister. And we talked about it and we said, okay, we will come in and we will help and we'll do some other things. Well, so far he hasn't left. He retired. He says it's not time for him to leave yet. And I think in a lot of cases, Holly, it might have just been, I need some more help. Mm -hmm. You know, that might have been a plea for help. And a lot of times we don't always want to deal with it because it creates a sacrifice. I go home every two weeks. I get on that road and ride to Charleston. I get tired sometimes, but I have no choice. Mm -hmm. And the key is I want to let my last days with my mother is something that I enjoy, not something I endure. Because if I'm enduring it, she knows, I know, but at the same time, who says it's my responsibility? Who says it's the children's responsibility to take care of their parents? Is that an unwritten rule? What happens if we say we don't want to take care of our parents? Because you're going to have some sibling, thank God it's not in my case, that says, you know what? I'm not taking care of mama. And then they go down a litany, a list on why not? Because when I was one year old, they did this. Jeff was her favorite. So let Jeff take care of her. Well, Carly is the executor of the will. Let you take care of her. All those things start happening because if we don't want to do something, we'll find any reason to say no. Mm -hmm. And if we want to do something, we'll find any reason to say yes. So we love Naughty. We support him. We understand his personality. His personality is different from Odell. Odell has never met a stranger. My brother is very reserved, keeps his feelings close to the vest, so we have to deal with him in a way that is comfortable with him. That's a powerful piece in the book because even when I think about it now, it just brings me to tears. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of complicated emotions that go into caregiving. Particularly, you talk about if you're caring for somebody who wasn't necessarily there for you, who wasn't present in your life. Can you talk about those dynamics? 
Yeah, I mean, I hear from people all the time is like, listen, here's this person. And in a lot of cases, with someone, not always, but sometimes, so I don't want to stereotype or anything like that. However, when someone in the South and other places may got pregnant as a teenager or a little earlier, and the grandmother stepped in and said, I raised the child, and you go ahead with your career and everything else. Well, biologically, the grandmother is not the mother, but the grandmother is the mother because that's who raised the child. Well, sometimes what happened to the mother, but guess what? It was the father too. So now 20, 30 years later, well, I'm your dad. I need you to come and take care of me. Well, you've never did much for me before other than to be a sperm donor. Mm -hmm. So now how do I deal with that? Or in another cases, we have divorces. What happens if I was a child, your mom did whatever grownups do, and you all got a divorce, and now you over there living with another family, but for some reason, however that turned out, now you want me to take care of you. How do you take care of someone who didn't take care of you? How do you love someone who didn't love you? How do you care for someone who didn't care for you? Because this is sacrifices. You're asking people to open up their homes. You're asking them to open up their wallets. You're asking them to open up their emotions. And what happened if you're not willing to deal with the legal part of it, with the will, with the resources, with all this stuff, because you can't just ask someone to support you and you don't support them. Mm-hmm. And there's one funny part when I was reading the book. It's talking about your mom when it comes back to her and a lot of the caregiving centering around the, the needs of your mom, but also this new time and space that your mom is living in. And there was a story you raised about taking your mom's car keys. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, you're like a teenager, you know, where your mom, where my mom was take my car keys if I don't do anything right. Now you're the adult with your mom. Talk about that story. I think that's chapter three. We call it the epic struggle because the underlying cause behind that is independence. I think we all remember that when we got our driving permit, it's independence. And our driver's license, and man, we would borrow the family car. Well, then we got our own car. It's like we could come and go as we wanted to as long as we had gas money. And now you're telling the person who taught you how to drive that I'm coming to him or her and say, I'm taking your independence away. Well, you know, that's hard. And the fact that my mother was having some little bump ups, she was bumping up here, bumping up there, and she would say, no big deal. But we knew that it was time. Now, I didn't just walk in and take her keys because that wouldn't work. My mother's a very independent woman. We started having the conversations a year out. Mommy, uh, you know, your driving is not before. And she would just get quiet. <laughs> and then we would say one thing or the other. You had another little bump up and she would get quiet. And eventually we got her to surrender, to surrender her keys. And one day I was in there, she was complaining about her cars and stuff. And I said, well, you know, um, Queen Elizabeth's husband, he's 90 something years old. He gave up his driver's license. And my mama, just as sharp as she could, said, yeah, but you know what? You don't need a driver's license to drive. You know, so I bet he didn't give up his keys. And she was so right. And the way she hit it, she said, listen, we are fighting for our independence. And as a child, you're the child, I'm the adult. And you get into that all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm the adult. You're the child. But at the same time, you have to look at it and manage it like you are the adult. You are my mother. You are my father. I love you. However, I have to make some tough decisions right now that's going to affect you and it's going to affect me. And I'm not always going to be her pumpkin. That was her favorite nickname for me. She loved her pumpkin. Well, sometimes I know the pumpkin get on her nerves, but I'm doing what I think is best for her Mm -hmm. and for the family. Because the last thing I would want to happen is for my mother to be out there and hurt herself or hurt someone else because she wasn't in a position to drive. 
What is funny is I've got your book and I'm looking at the page where you share a story. And uh, it says, she looked at me with that contagious smile and said, yeah, but I bet he didn't give up all his sets of keys. Exactly. (laughs) Remember, you don't need your driver's license to drive. You need keys. That's what she said. Uh, She sounds like someone I would really like. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think they describe my mother as a pistol. You know, she's a pistol. She's a pistol, but I love her. Sharp tongue, but I love her. And she still, from time to time, bring that up. You know, I can't go where I want to go. I'm dependent on someone else. And who wants to be dependent on somebody else? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mainly her children. Yep. Yeah. So you talk about caregiving with your siblings, you know, that sibling rivalry. Mm-hmm. What do you see as important when you're caring for someone like your mother who you love? My mother put me in charge as a person who could sign all the documents, the person who could do all this kind of stuff. And We've always got along well as children. It was four of us. My uh, younger sister got uh, killed tragically in a car accident. When you have the power of the attorney and you could sign things over, you could do all this kind of stuff, you have to be careful because I was chosen to be the one, but then that means I have a sister and a brother who wasn't chosen. Mm -hmm. So I immediately started asking my mother, well, why did you choose me. And she said, I didn't choose you. The attorney chose you. You know, so it's like, nah, nah, nah. But so that's a whole nother deal because when parents choose someone to be in charge of all their affairs, you have to be careful. So immediately what I did, I said, okay, the bank accounts, let's put my sister and my brother's name on the bank accounts, not mine. And you start divvying up the responsibility and the accountability because Naughty said to me immediately, said, okay, Odell, if you have the power of attorney and everything else, what happens if we need a check to pay for something? You in Greensboro, North Carolina, we're in Charleston. What do we do? You're going to come down here every time and write a check? And I knew my brother. I knew him. I knew his personality. So that was passive aggressive saying, I don't know if I agree with this decision, you know, but he wouldn't say that. So I immediately said, you're absolutely right. Let's do this. Let's open up a separate account that not my mother's money, but the money the siblings will put in to help cover things. And Naughty, you and my sister Glenn, you all would be responsible on that account. And that kind of brought everything down, you know, brought everything down to say, okay, he's not tripping. He's not ego tripping. He's not trying to act like he's the big cheese and we all work for him. And that's important because remember, I don't know, you have sisters and brothers, sometimes you disagree over something and 20 years later, it boils down to what you disagreed about when you were three years old or when you were five years old or you were 13 years old. And right now we don't have time for that. We're trying to come together as adult children caring for an elderly parent. Yeah. And you spend a chapter talking about how to have a family meeting. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. A lot of us, you know, when I read that, I was going, well, you know, yeah, we kind of have these conversations and all that. But you were really deliberative about talking about the need to have a structured conversation among mm-hmm, your mm-hmm, siblings mm-hmm. And, and even inviting your mom to be a part of that. Yeah, you can talk about that. Yeah, you have to. You have to invite the person who you're caring for because in a lot of cases, we act like it's us. Well, it's not us. It's all of us. And that person who we're taking care of has to have a say-so or a buy-in. So I said, okay, I won't go through all the steps. Those who uh, would love to purchase the book will see all the steps. But it's just a structured way of how do you bring people together on neutral ground? How do you let people know what the meeting's going to be about? You're not ambushing anyone. You're not having these sidebar conversations. You don't have hidden agendas. This is what the meeting's going to be about. And I don't know about you all, but in every family in my family, not immediate family, but we have drama kings and drama queens. We have people who they're emotional and they're going to just 
kind of blow the meeting up and when you ask them a question that they don't want to answer, they're going to say, well, whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not allowed. That's not allowed. And you let people know up front, you have to participate, either you're going to be a part of the problem or the solution, but you can't say you didn't know. Because a lot of people say, well, if I had known, I would have did this and I would have did that. No, you know. Mm -hmm. Here's the agenda. The only thing we're going to talk about is what's on this agenda. And if you have something else that you want to bring up, okay, we're going to put it in the parking lot and we'll deal with that on the next meeting. And a structured meeting cut down on a lot of the craziness, a lot of the craziness. And But you send it out two weeks in advance, let everybody look at it and say, you know, just like any other meeting, not Robert's Rules of Order per se. We don't want to go that far, but we want to say, look at what we plan on talking about. Please share your thoughts with everyone because that takes away that power of that person talking to this other person on the side. No, everyone, because we have nothing to hide. Right. We have a loved one who's dying and we want to go from point A to the best way we can to the side, to the graveside. So how do we make that happen? And I need everybody to participate. So that's how I did it. And it's, I think it's like eight steps. And people tell me those steps are just so important to them because they didn't know. Everything from being on uh, mutual grounds is not in one person's house. What do you do with the children? You know, all this kind of stuff. And just open and honest conversation. Because I think one of the things that we miss, we want everything to be fair. Well, it's hard to be fair when one sibling may have more resources, financial resources than another, another sibling may have more time than someone else, and another one may not be the best at emptying surprise bedpans. You know, mm-hmm. everybody can't be a caregiver. Everybody doesn't have it. However, everybody can do something. So let's decide what you're going to do. And once you decide what you're going to do, then we commit to it. Because it's not fair to say, well, we're all going to split it 50-50-50. That doesn't usually work. Right. So another thing you talk about in your book is that sometimes caregivers can be designated the explainer-in-chief. Yes. Can you talk about what that means? Yes, yes, yes. You know, that was like going to the hospital. You go to the hospital, mom go to the hospital, you have all these gadgets and gadgets and the doctor's coming in telling you this and everybody's telling you that and people calling you on the phone, family members calling you on the phone. Well, what's going on with mom? What's going on here? And you're like, I don't even know. It's so much stuff going on and everybody wants you to explain everything to them and they're asking you questions and they're asking about the medications and asking you about the insurance and Medicaid, Medicare, private pay, the doctor's appointments and all this kind of stuff. And it's just overwhelming. And why you have to explain to everybody over and over and over again. And then people get upset about mom or dad's condition. And sometimes that frustration, anxiety, being upset rolls on to you as the caregiver. And you don't need that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people don't understand. You know, someone may call the Register of Deeds office and they're upset about the death certificate. It's not about the death certificate. It's right. about the death. It's about the death. That's what they're upset about. And you have to level them out, help them, even though they're yelling, even though they're screaming, even though they're upset. Yeah. And that's what the explainer chief means. You have to have the mental capacity to help everybody understand the truth with not allowing them to create their own narrative. That is an incredible point and leads into the next question I was going to have is that you write about as a caregiver when things fall apart. And you started it with the serenity prayer, but you mentioned there was an expanded prayer that was shortened related to the AA serenity prayer. I'll leave the reader to read that longer quote. I'll say it spoke to me, but I thought it was really interesting that you, and you do that throughout the book, is that you do a really good job of 
again, soberly as a caregiver, you're not only dealing with the great times, you're dealing in many cases with situations that fall apart, not just with strangers. You know, you're dealing it with family members who are deeply committed to the situation, and there's so many dynamics at play. So can you talk a little bit about the idea of things falling apart as a caregiver and what that means? Well, well, I think that a lot of times we have our day plan. We're going to do this, this, yep. this, this, this. The scenario that I used was we had a big tree, and the tree fell. During the storm, the tree fell. The tree blocked the street. It tore up our fence. It tore up the neighbor's fence. It knocked down the power line. So we had the forestry come in. The EMS comes in, the fire truck comes in, all that stuff. And that's the last thing a caregiver, my brother, needed. It fell on his boat that was in the yard. And you have to understand that that scenario was similar to how things fall apart in our lives. We are sitting there thinking we got it all under control. And we are so overwhelmed that we're not asking for help. Or we ask for help. We say, well, I shouldn't ask for help. They see what's going on. They understand. But when we ask you do you need help? You're like, I got it, I got it, I got it. And then all of a sudden you blow up and you're like, no one's helping me. No one's doing this. No one's doing that. And that's the part about when things fall apart, because in my personal life, a lot of times, you know, I think I have certain things, then the next phone call or my son in California might need something or my son and my grandkids in Charlotte may need something or my wife may have to work overtime. But just it's so much. So we have to give ourselves permission to not be perfect. Mm-hmm. We're not perfect. We give ourselves permission. It don't always work, you know, the way we have it planned. So if we give ourselves permission to come up short sometime, then it'll be okay. But if we don't, then we're going to cause problems for us and problems for others because a lot of times we are not in control. We don't control this. We think we are. We can manage it, but we don't control it. And that's what the whole thing about when things fall apart, giving people permission to be real. Mm-hmm. So near the end of the book, you discuss memories sort of as a segue into potential health problems as we age, whether it's dementia, Alzheimer's. Can you talk about those things? Yes. Personally, my mother, I don't want to say, I don't want to analyze her or do anything like that because I'm not a professional to do that. However, I know it's easier to communicate with her early in the morning than in the evening. Mm -hmm. I know sometimes she will repeat herself or sometimes she forgets certain things. So for me personally... I sit there and look at my mother sometimes and say, wow, this is a strong black woman who's been there for me and everybody else. I remember once when I was in third grade, my mother, you know, I've talked about her having a stroke. She walked three miles to the elementary school because they were going to put me in special ed class. And I remember her walking with a wooden cane in her left hand and a metal brace coming up to her thighs on her right leg. And she came down there to make sure that they didn't put her pumpkin in special ed class. And this is a woman now that struggles to get out of bed to use the bedpan. And, you you know, you just think about it. And the memories, and I say this a lot. One day I was flying back from Israel. We were coming back from Israel, interfaith trip. And I thought, if one black single divorced mother can take care of four kids in the South in the 60s, early 70s, why can't three remaining kids take care of one mother? Those are the memories. That's, that's the stuff. That's what drives me. That's why I'm committed to, in spite of, I'm going to do everything I can do, understanding though, that I have a wife, I have a career, I have a lot of other things, but how do you walk away from the memories? How do you walk away from someone who did so much for you and help you become who you are today? So I remember her as where she was, but I have to fight the memories back to deal with the reality of where she is now. 
And the role that she played in my life then, now I have to play kind of like a reverse role in her life. And with the understanding way back in my mind that one day, Odell, someone's going to play this role for you. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to memories, I, you know, she, she kept forgetting. And I remember as a child, it was this beautiful picture of her, Olin Mills. I didn't even know how we can afford to have an Olin Mills picture. We were so poor. <laughs> but a beautiful picture of my mother that I fell in love with as a child. And I remember asking her a question once. I said, Mommy, why did you take this picture? And she said, well, I was 24 years old and I felt something was going to happen to me. So I took a picture because I didn't want my children to ask people, what did my mother look like? Who, who was my mother? So she took that picture and I remember making copies of that picture and I put it all over the house because I wanted her to always see that picture and remember who she was, you know, who she was. And that's the memories because if we're not careful, she'll forget who she was. And we'll forget who she was. And it's more the life than just this last chapter. You know, it's a lot. It's a lot of good. It's a lot of bad. It's a lot of mistakes. It's a lot of good times. And if we're not careful, we just remember the thing that hurt us the most. You know? Yeah. That's a powerful statement. With this journey that you've been on since, you know, from the beginning, just in terms of growing up in Charleston and the struggles that your family had to go through in addition to mom having that stroke when she was only 25 and mm -hmm. the caregiving experience that your brother has gone through as well as now in terms of the extended family. You know, there is this point near the end where it talks about the time where caregiving ends. Yes. And I, I go back to the question that you actually mentioned, which was that you ask at the beginning and then ask at the end, when your time as a caregiver is over, will you feel relieved or guilty? And will you feel guilty for feeling relieved? And that's heavy. And, and I think at the end, you talk to someone who gives you a, yes. a nuanced yes. answer to that. So I guess that'll be kind of the final question is, you know, how do you talk through the, the caregiving experience as it's ending? Well, you go back to the beginning. You go back to the beginning. You go back to as a person, and I'll make this short, as a person, I couldn't go around hating white people because my mother was misdiagnosed. And I think she was misdiagnosed because of biases and she was a poor black woman. If I allow that to be the end of the story, then I'm hating white people for what happened to my mother. And then I'm hating people who had nothing to do with that. But I'm so bitter. I'm so hurt. That's so deep inside of me. Then I'm hating everybody. Well, we know what hate does. Hate destroys the person who's harboring and carrying and nurturing the hate. Now, my mother taught us not to hate anyone. My mother never, ever talked about someone did her wrong. She didn't do that. We focus on, God, thank you for allowing my mother to live. Because she said when she was going through her journey in the hospital, she said, God, allow me to live long enough to see my children to be grown. That was her prayer. It wasn't, God, give me vengeance on who did me wrong. So now when you go to the end and the person said, I was talking about his mother. He was taking care of his mother for six months. And he said, Odell, you know, I had so much going on with my mother and I wanted her to die, but I didn't want her dead. And I think mm -hmm. that's the statement you're referring to. He said, I wanted yeah. her to die, but I didn't want her dead. And what I got from it, because I'm very careful not to interpret someone else's meaning, but what I got from it, and he agreed, is that she's going through a lot. You know, she's going through a lot. My mother's going through a lot. Now, my statement is not, I want her to die, but I don't want her dead. That's not my statement. But I often think, how long, Lord? Not mm -hmm. how long for me as a caregiver, but how long for her? You know, how long for her? But 
That's way out of my pay grade. That's between her and God. That's the same conversation that her and God had when she was laying in the hospital for three months and they didn't know if she was going to live and die. So if they could have that conversation, they could have this other conversation. I'm not trying to preach to anybody, but at the end of the day, I want to stand on the side of the grave. I don't want to preach the funeral. I don't want to be Reverend Odell. I want to be the son. I want to be pumpkin. I want to sit on the front pew and say, God, I feel good that I did all I can do to take care of my mother. So I'm relieved that she's with you. But I'm not even guilty for feeling relieved. I'm happy that I'm relieved. I'm happy that I don't have the responsibility of caregiving anymore. Now, other people say, oh, my God, you selfish, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> they say they want to. Let them come and change those bad plans. Let them come and ride up and down that high. And I'm not complaining. I'm just trying to be real. And that's what this book is all about. It allows people to be real. Because a lot of times we can't even be honest with ourselves. Mm. That is an incredibly heartfelt response. And in terms of reading the book, I was left feeling that in your writing, is that these are incredibly human stories. You are going on an incredibly complex journey in the book. Uh, around caregiving. And one thing I'll mention as we're moving toward closing is, is that we're going to focus on health inequities. And I think, you know, for example, race inequities, those things can be life and death. Yes. And the situation with your mother is a perfect example of being in a situation where she needs immediate care around a serious illness and doesn't get it in a way that could have had a qualitative difference on her life. My heart is so appreciative of you in sharing the impact of caregiving as it is ending. And I'm also thinking about, you know, based on this message, what is our responsibility to make sure the dignity, worth, and potential of everyone is valued as it relates to not only being a caregiver, but receiving care. And mm -hmm. so, Odell, I really appreciate you being here. I know Carly and I have really enjoyed the opportunity to talk to you about your book. The book is called It's my Turn Now, Caregiving 101 by Odell Cleveland. You can purchase a book at uh, www.odellcleveland.com. And it is a book that is both easy to read and some ways short. And it is also one you can really marinate on. And that at different points of the book, it really speaks to your heart about being a caregiver or what that means. So, Odell, thank you for your leadership in Greensboro. Thank you for what you do, not only within the faith communities and the church, um, at being a, a person that is always trying to help our community find common ground around a lot of things. I appreciate you for doing all that. And I really do appreciate you for writing this book. So thank you very much for being a part of the Good Grief podcast. Listen, and thank you all both for having me. And I just think Good Grief is amazing. I love what you all are doing because we need it. We need it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Grief podcast. We want your feedback. You can visit our website at www.guilforddeeds.com. You can also email us at endoflife at guilfordcountync.gov or find us on Twitter with the handle at guilford underscore ROD. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and until next time, take care.